Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, February 14th by Pastor Tim Voth. This is the seventh sermon in our series entitled The Joy of the Lord, the Book of Philippians. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Have you ever had a paradigm shift? A paradigm shift happens when the way you view the world is so completely altered that you can never go back to viewing it the way you did before. They can happen over a long period of time or suddenly in an instant. I've had a few in my life that I can think of, and one of them had to do with drinking coffee. Yes, this one was so profound it changed my whole life. Well, not really, but it did view how it did change how I viewed drinking coffee. Years ago, I was talking with our very own Rob Schaff about how I dislike the taste of coffee. He said, you're just drinking it all wrong. Now, I confess, I used to think that people who talk about drinking coffee and fine wines as if there's some exact way to sip it and smell it and let it roll over your tongue were just being overly sophisticated and maybe even a little pretentious. But Rob explained to me how to do it, sip it, let it hit the tip of your tongue, and then after a bit, let it roll over the rest of your tongue. Quite skeptically, I tried it, and he was right. Suddenly, new flavors started out that I hadn't noticed before, and instead of tasting uh, how I imagine battery acid or cigarette butts taste, it actually started to taste kind of nutty and smooth and quite delicious. And now I can never go back to how I viewed it before, and now I also can't stop drinking coffee, so thanks a lot, Rob. But I can remember more profound paradigm shifts in my life, too. Like when I first came to trust in Jesus in a living relationship, I could no longer see the universe as empty and meaningless like I did before because there was a God and he loved me. Or like when a bit later in my faith, feeling overwhelmed by sin, not knowing the Bible very well, someone told me the exact right scripture in the exact right moment. Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I could no longer see my sin the same way. I knew I was loved and forgiven right in the middle of my failures. Or like how after being married for a while, I started to see that the deep joy of steadfast, other-centered, serving love is so much more solid than the bubbly feelings of romance. Or like when I became a father for the first time and held our first baby and thought I would do anything for this person. And it changed how I see people, knowing that we all start so small and helpless. And these are just some examples of paradigm shifts in my life, and I'm sure if you thought about it, you could think of shifts you've had in your own life, whether big or small, where suddenly or over a period of time, everything is different, the veil is removed, and you can never go back to viewing things the same way again. Now we're going through a sermon series called The Joy of the Lord, and we're reading through the letter written to the Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul. And if you know anything about Paul, it is probably that he had one of these radical paradigm shifts, which happened when he, was, when he encountered the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's one of the main things about Paul, usually, that we think about, his, his, profound, his profound conversion experience, when he was transformed from someone who hated Jesus and terrorized his followers to someone who trusted in Jesus and advanced the church. You can find the story retold in a few different places, one of which is in Acts chapter 9, which is worth a read this week. Paul was very zealous, and in his framework, these Christians were opposed to God. It was his duty as a devoutly religious Jew to snuff out this anti-God movement. But he was blind to the great irony that it was in his very devotion, in this framework, that he was the one who was opposed to God. And suddenly, a blinding light knocks him down. Now he truly is blind, and he hears a voice saying, Why are you persecuting me? 
and overwhelmed, he says, who are you, Lord? I mean, he can't help but think this must be God. But he's confused by the question. Me persecuting you? I'm working for you, God. The voice says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. In that moment, I can't imagine how Paul's whole world came crashing down. The Lord is the one I've been actively fighting against? I wonder if he thought this Lord was about to smite him. But instead, this Lord showed him grace that altered the rest of his life. In that moment, Paul had a radical shift from law to grace. Though he was blind after a few days, his true eyes were opened and he could never go back. It makes me think of the late 90s movie, The Matrix. Now, if you aren't familiar with it, don't worry. I'll try to set it up a bit. The main character's name is Neo, and he's unaware that the world he lives in is actually a computer simulation called The Matrix, which is not real. He has a mundane life working his way up the corporate ladder, moderately successful, a pretty typical city lifestyle. But suddenly, in a wild journey, some people from the real world pull him out of the computer simulation, and he awakens into the real world. He's basically reborn. Massive paradigm shift. He too is blind because he's never used his real eyes before. And he discovers that in the real world, all humans are plugged into massive computers to keep them unaware that robots actually rule the world and use humans as batteries to keep them powered. It's pretty twisted, I know. But he becomes part of this literal underground movement to defeat the robots and reclaim the world for humans. Though this real world is harsh and scary and awful and not nearly as comfortable as his old life, he could never go back because he knows he would be living a lie. And at least in this real world, there was hope for actual redemption. No matter how successful, wealthy, or moral he was in the Matrix, he would know it wasn't real and he would just be some battery used to power a robot. But there is one guy who does want to go back named Cypher. He wants to forget the real world and just go back to the ignorant bliss of simply enjoying life, being successful, and loved by the world. And he's willing to sacrifice the underground movement and the world itself just to go back to his old life. So what does this all have to do with Paul and, and the Philippians? Well, when Jesus met Paul, he woke up from the world of the law and was born again into the reality of God's grace and could never go back. But there were some people who wanted to go back to the law and were willing to jeopardize the whole Jesus movement to do it. So let's start at Philippians 3.1. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. All right, so, so finally, rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in him. Sounds good, Paul. And then listen to what he says next. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And if you've been following the sermon series till now, you'll notice a drastic shift in Paul's tone. Up till now, he's been warm, affectionate, loving, affirming. But now he switches his tone. Why? Well, if you read the letter to the Galatian church a few years earlier, you'll sense a similar tone, although it's much harsher. Paul wrote to the Galatians because they were abandoning the gospel and were turning to another gospel and back to the works of the law to make them right with God and keep them in relationship with him. He calls them foolish and says, who is it that's bewitched you? But he knows who it was. There were Jews in the Jesus movement that had started reverting back to the law, and they're sometimes referred to as the Judaizers. They were offended by Paul's insistence on grace through faith alone and said, well, yes, but also circumcision and some observances of feasts, oh, and Sabbath adherence and a bunch of other outward symbols and works to make sure you're really secure in the covenant and legitimately God's people. 
unlike those lowly Gentiles who just depend on faith in Jesus to make them right with God. So they followed behind Paul after he had planted church and would undercut his ministry and the gospel. Their law-obsessed, legalistic mindset was splitting churches apart and drawing converts back into the delusion of righteousness through the law, which was sucking the gospel life out of these churches. It was destroying the Jesus movement and was producing law-enslaved, egotistical, judgmental Christians, not the free, loving, grace-filled servants that the gospel had been making. Paul was furious. This was the antithesis of the gospel. We are saved and belong to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, period, end of story. So Paul had seen this legalism spread like a virus through some of the churches. He had seen the devastation it inflicted on individual believers and on these, and on these um, Jesus communities. And so he firmly warns the Philippians, they're doing so great, their faith is vibrant, they are full of true joy, they're loving one another with self-sacrificial Christ-like love, they're doing the true works of faith. The last thing they need is a spirit of legalism to drag them back into a lie and destroy the beautiful work God was doing among them by his spirit. So in light of that, he's understandably stern in his warning. Not only is his warning stern, but it's also bitingly sarcastic. He calls these Jews dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. And I don't have time to get into all the puns and irony here, but basically he's using the very terms that the Jews use towards pagans and Gentiles on them. Dogs was usually used for unclean Gentiles who don't keep the law. Evildoers was usually used for those who disobey the law, not keep it perfectly. And mutilators, this is just brilliant. They used that term when referring to pagan worshipers who cut themselves to appease their gods. And now Paul is saying that these people who demand circumcision are doing, uh, are doing just mutilating the flesh in the false hope that it will appease their god. They're doing the same thing. Ouch. On many different levels, ouch. Now while all these things seem super righteous and spiritual, this one commentator hit the nail on the head. Without faith in Christ and the inner work of the Spirit, even the most sacred rite is merely a physical act and meaningless performance with no spiritual value at all. This warning of Paul's to the church in Philippi is relevant for us today too. Beware. Be on the lookout. There are people out in our world and in the church who are very good at signaling their own virtue but lack true goodness. When people boast in their own goodness, don't get drawn into it. Don't believe it. When people in our culture insist there are things you have to say or not say or do or not do or show or not show in order to be labeled a good person, don't buy it. When pastors or fellow believers say you have to do or wear or say A, B, and C in order to be a true follower of Jesus, be very skeptical. All external displays of righteousness are shortcuts and there are no shortcuts to true righteousness. Nothing you put on your body or on your social media can change the status of your soul. But why is it so easy to start feeling un unworthy and sucked into lies about what it means to be a good person when people boast in themselves? People's displays of virtue can subtly and subconsciously misdirect how we live our lives for Jesus. Don't get sucked into chasing external markers of success to define your significance, whether secular or Christian. You can't put confidence in that. Don't let legalism or virtue signaling steal the gospel from you. True righteousness is found in Jesus alone. True joy and significance is found in Jesus, Jesus alone. Which is why he goes on to say this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, in the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I remember one of my mentors used to warn me by saying, you know, you can climb life's long ladder only to realize once you're at the top that it was up against the wrong building. Paul's basically saying, look, no one can come to me and say, if only you had been a bit more righteous or observed a bit more of the law or had been a bit more Jewish, you would have seen that the law really can get you to God. Nope. He says, I've climbed that ladder. I surpassed everyone. I got to the top. And guys, trust me, the ladder is on the wrong building. God's not up there. Paul has the track record to say this with all credibility. He had every status symbol, every badge you could wear, every external sign of virtue. In that paradigm, if anyone could have attained righteousness through the law, it would have been Paul. And he says, church, don't climb the ladder of the flesh. On the way up, there's only competition and judgment and arrogance, and on the top, only a lonely, godless self-righteousness. In the end, it's a loss. It doesn't matter how much status you have, how good of a person you are. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, climbing up any ladder to get to God is a loss. Really, Paul, a loss? Weren't you raised in a family of Pharisees? Weren't you trained under the prestigious teacher Gamaliel? Weren't you working your way up the ranks, being praised by all the Jewish leaders as a golden boy? Doors open, opportunities coming your way, studying and memorizing the Torah. And you're going to call all of that a loss? After I met Jesus, yeah, loss, all of it. It's like that Johnny Cash song, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. For his sake, it's all less than nothing. Paul had invested in the stock of the flesh, and even though its value kept going up and up, gain after gain, in Jesus it was a complete crash, bankrupt, empty, debt, negative value. And while he's caught up in this train of thought, it's like he takes it to the nth degree. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All of Paul's striving to follow the law and measure up to God's standard was to stay in God's good books. And there on that road, he realized that he was actually in God's bad books. He was persecuting God's people. He had stood opposed to God. And what did he get in return? Grace, forgiveness, love, redemption, restoration, calling, purpose, all in an intimate relationship with the God of all creation in the person of Jesus Christ. Think of that language, so intimate, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, being found in him. Paul came to know the God behind the law. This God wasn't one that he had to work towards. He was one that came down for him. And now, in light of this personal relationship he had with Jesus, the law, no, everything paled in comparison. It helps me to think of it like this. Think of someone you love, a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend. Now imagine if someone said, you can't ever see that person again, but guess what? You can have this picture of them instead. That, that would be the same, right? Or how about a book about them? Or a list of things they would like you to do? Or how about a drawing of them? Would that be okay instead of having them with you? 
you would obviously say, no, 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 this isn't the same at all. I would give up all that stuff just to have the person I love with me. Nothing else is even worth comparing. Paul's saying the same thing about Jesus. He's saying, look, if there were a scale and you put Jesus on one side and the law on the other, Jesus wins hands down. In fact, there's not a single thing you could put on the other side that would have more weight, more glory than knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. No person, no position, no amount of money, success, prestige, comfort, pleasure, nothing. Jesus wins against everything. Everything is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And the word he actually uses there is basically the harsh way of saying human excrement. In light of who Jesus is, what he has done for me, and knowing him personally, Anything that gets in the way of that is garbage. Better to be thrown out and disregarded. If I had to choose, I choose the surpassing riches of knowing Jesus. And Paul really did choose. These aren't just hypothetical words to Paul. He's saying this as someone who has skin in the game. He decidedly and intentionally suffered the loss of all things. There it was, all on one side, all his dreams, All the people praising him for his Jewish zeal, all the people glorifying him for his pharisaical obedience, all the doors open, all the status, all the success and comfort and reputation and wealth, everything that his world had to offer. Even in his Christian life, he could have just stayed home, agreed with the Judaizers, avoided all this conflict, avoided prison. But on the other side was Jesus, who had changed him. And he could never go back. He just couldn't. He knew his old life was a lie. And no matter the cost, the gain of the truth of knowing Jesus outweighed any cost. And I happened to be reading a book by Rod Dreher called Live Not By Lies, where the author recounts the stories of many Christians who lived in the Soviet Union. He interviews one Baptist pastor named Yuri Sipko, who lived in Siberia in the 1950s. Now, he quotes many Christians of many denominations and backgrounds, but this one just happened to fit so well. I, was, I read it a few days ago, and it just jumped out at me in light of uh, thinking about what Paul says here in Philippians. So this pastor, as a boy, was pressured to wear a badge of Lenin and many other outward symbols to show his allegiance to the Communist Party. He says, to be a Baptist in Soviet Russia was to know that you were a permanent outsider. They endured it because they knew that the truth was embodied in Jesus Christ, and that to live apart from him would mean living a lie. For Baptists, to compromise with the lies for the sake of a peaceful life is to bend at the knee to death. Yuri says, when I think about the past and how our brothers were sent to prison and never returned, I'm sure that this is the kind of certainty they had, says the old pastor. They lost any kind of status. They were mocked and ridiculed in society. Sometimes they even lost their children. Just because they were Baptists, the state was willing to take away their kids and send them to orphanages. These believers were unable to find jobs, their children were not able to enter universities, and still they believed. The Baptists stood alone, but stand they did. If you have been discipled in a faith that takes seriously the Apostle Paul's words that to suffer for Christ is gain and are prepared to live with reduced expectations of worldly success, it becomes easier to stand for the truth. And that might seem extreme, but even if it is, are there smaller ways that we might be clinging to status or success above Jesus? And what truth were these people standing for? What was it about Jesus that made everything pale in comparison to Paul? They had met Jesus. They knew him. And they knew that being right with God depended on faith in him alone. We can't earn God's love. We never could. You never can. Paul expands on it like this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3. 
But now, apart from the law, righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There is a righteousness available to you. And if you remember anything from today, from this, remember this. The righteousness offered from Jesus to you is not achieved, but received. Not achieved, but received. Jesus has accomplished everything in order to bring us into a relationship with God. Paul deserved to die for what he had done, but Jesus withheld this judgment and took his death for him instead. That's mercy. Paul did not deserve the resurrection into eternal life, but Jesus won it in his triumphant resurrection and gave it to him as a free gift. That's grace. And that's the gospel. That's the good news that's available to you and to me. And it's been said that this gospel at once humbles us into the dust and makes us soar to the skies. It humbles us because maybe you do have some stuff going for you that you could rightfully boast in. And it's good to do good and it's good to succeed, but none, none of your works, success, achievements, good deeds get you one inch closer to God. That's the humbling part. God's house isn't a big, tall building with many levels that we're all climbing up. It's a loft. It's one floor, and we are all welcome through the one door of faith. We all have things that, you know, make us secretly compare ourselves to others, but before God, it's all flattened. That's humbling, but it's also a relief, isn't it? This relief and freedom is also the part that makes us sore because the flip side is that nothing, nothing you've ever done or failed to do, no sin, no amount of filth or lawlessness or evil or wickedness or misstep or wandering or despondency or weakness or walking away or anything makes you one inch farther from God. Paul killed Christians. I'm sure that thought haunted him. But he could proclaim in Jesus there was total forgiveness Jesus is ready for you to reach out to him in faith, either for the first time or once again. And in love and forgiveness, he longs to call you a son or daughter of the king, to redeem you, to pay for your sins, to qualify you for new life and resurrection, and give you a fresh start and calling in his kingdom. You can know Jesus and be found in him, and it doesn't take a bunch of works or badges or a degree or any pedigree. It just takes faith in him. Now, they might have thought, and you might be thinking too, Weren't we just talking about shortcuts to righteousness? Isn't that like the biggest shortcut ever, just by faith by the Spirit? None of that can be measured. It's invisible. It can't be compared or weighed. You could just say, I believe. That sounds like the biggest shortcut ever. Just some words and you're in. Well, in this last part, we can see that for Paul, trusting in Jesus meant union with Jesus. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you look at the kind of central poem in this letter in chapter two that we talked about a few sermons ago, it's amazing to see how Paul shows in parallel his union with Jesus. Jesus didn't use his status to his advantage, neither did Paul. Jesus gave up everything to be found as a human. Paul gave up everything to be found in Christ. Jesus became like a servant unto death. Paul became like Jesus unto death. Jesus will one day be acknowledged as Lord. Paul longs to know Christ Jesus as his Lord. Jesus rose from the dead. Paul anticipates union in his as well. He will be resurrected in Jesus. 
Once all the clamor of earning righteousness, comparing with others, and virtue signaling got out of the way, Paul could actually begin the real work of faith, the right living that actually counts and actually helps people, loving others, even if it means suffering, just like his Lord. It's been said, we're justified by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. True faith is not just empty words. True faith means union with Jesus, not just in his resurrection, but in the imitation of his life and suffering. These works aren't on display for everyone to see. They're hidden, done out of patient, enduring, other-centered love that isn't looking to draw attention to itself. Now, I remember years ago having a mantra I had read in a book that I would say to myself often when I felt like my pride started up or when I felt slighted because no one noticed how good I was being. I live my life for an audience of one. That's why Paul could say he was known and yet regarded as unknown. God knew him. God would reward him, and that is all that mattered, and that is true joy. And so Sardis Fellowship, look out. Look out for anything that would rob you of joy by tempting you to think in the mindset of legalism and confidence in the flesh. What's on the other side of of Jesus on your scale? Is it really a loss, or is it slowly becoming more valuable than Jesus? Remember his love for you. Remember the good news. And what building is your ladder on? Remember that whatever building it is, it will crumble in the end, and no amount of righteousness or success can buy you eternal resurrected life. Only Jesus can. So don't find your glory, your status, your significance in it. Find it once again in what Jesus accomplished for you. Let's let all that other stuff fall away and focus on union with Jesus. By faith, let's trust in his work, and by faith, let's live out that our union with him by loving those around us, even if it comes with a cost, even if it means some suffering and loss, because in this union, we will be found in him and gain life forever with him. And that is where true, everlasting joy is found. So here are a few discussion questions to talk about. One, have you ever experienced a paradigm shift, big or small? How do you now view what you thought before? Two, how did Paul view the law now that he had experienced the grace of Jesus? How do you view the law or doing good works in light of a personal relationship with Jesus? Three, why can it be so easy or so tempting to fall back into a mindset of legalism? What is an antidote to that temptation that can keep us living in grace? Well, thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you back here next week. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.